0: Welcome to episode 56 of the ZA Dev Chat Podcast. Tonight on the show, we're joined by Chantal.
1: Hello. Yeah,
2: hello.
0: Hello, hello. Lynn. How's it from Roseburg? And our guest for tonight is Simon Stewart. How's it, Simon? Hello. Yeah, Simon, thanks for joining us um, on the show tonight. I mean you've been on the show twice before, I think. Uh, once for Swift and once for freelancing.
3: Yeah, that sounds about right, I think.
0: Yeah. I don't think I was in any one of those two,
3: unfortunately.
0: <laughs> but uh, we, we're not going back. Yeah, so we kind of got back, uh, like as we said in the pre-call for kind of an unscripted autobiography. Uh, we thought it would be nice to give the audience a chance to get to meet you, but, uh, I mean, you are quite prolific in the good way. Um, in the developer community, you do so much for the community by speaking a lot at conferences. You run one of my favorite conferences, say every year, year after year. And uh, you go out to other conferences. You try to connect uh, different communities together. You introduced us to uh, Kennedy f- uh, from IAP. So, I mean, there's just a lot of good stuff that you do that I sometimes think... Uh, like doesn't the light doesn't get shone on it, or maybe not bright enough, and and I guess people might just see little glimpses of you. So we can use this as a chance to uh, to colour this in. So I almost want to start at you in the prequel. We had a bit of a, a a chat and a joke when you said you when you moved up to to Joburg. So where were you staying before you came up to Ghateng? Uh
3: So I was I was born in Cape Town and I grew up in PE. I actually went to the same. High school at the same time as uh, Mark Heiliger's from Ruby Fusa, which is quite bizarre that it took so many years to figure that one out. And he figured it out last week, I think.
0: Wow. Are we guys friends in school? Or was it the big school that you
3: that it didn't bump into each other? No. I, I mean, the fact that we both got into computers probably meant that we weren't running around trying to find people to, to be <laughs> friends with. <laughs> I guess that's all. Um, but I, I don't remember him. Uh, he was two years ahead of me. So um but it was just it was just bizarre the fact that I that we actually went to the same school it's like really crazy
2: two conference organizers in the same school coincidence
3: oh it shows it, it must have been that must have been that uh conference organizing 101 class we both did <laughs>
0: yeah I mean uh, maybe P is just like the brewing ground for for this kind of thing <laughs> and uh when you came up to job it did you
3: come up come up to study or come up to work so actually, after school, I went to I went to Durban and I studied uh, chiropractic for two years. I had um, I had plans on being a being a doctor, uh, which didn't didn't work out for a couple of reasons. And then I had a brief brief stay back at home, and then came out to Joburg. So that was that was kind of the kind of the trip. Born in Cape Town, grew up in PE, studied in Durban, and then came out to Joburg.
0: Are you going to complete the circle by going in Bloom and then back to Cape Town?
3: No, 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 I think we'll <laughs> take care of the, um, the, the, the technology mecca that is Bloemfontein. <laughs> um, but I was down in PE uh, last week, just out of interest, but uh, kind of unrelated to, to career stuff.
0: And uh, I've given what was your first software-related uh, job that got you into it? I mean, from Cairo, that's quite a big jump.
3: It is. I mean, they're not, they're not, they're not 100% related. Um, I think, just like probably all of us on the call, I think I just grew up grew up with computers. um and I've actually got my first well, the same model of my first computer hanging up in my office. it's a, it's a ZX spectrum, which is quite cool. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. Um, it's one of those things that if you've got a if you're thinking along the lines of doing something when you're at school, you're probably going to end up doing it regardless of whether you you've got an aptitude for it. Um, so I think in hindsight, maybe it would have been better to have gone straight into computers, but but these things happen. At least I've, I've kind of managed to do a couple of different things.
4: But do you remember the first program that you
3: wrote? It was probably something really basic on the spectrum. Uh, it had one of those old printers that kind of had that continuous feed. I don't even know what you call it. Like a cash register printer.
4: Yeah, like um, fan, fan-fold kind of paper stuff.
3: Yeah, it was probably something like random, like a for loop uh, oh, with, cool. with that. So it doesn't quite count as experience, <laughs> uh, but I guess it was that and then some stuff counts, on, yeah, I was just going to update my LinkedIn profile and add another <laughs> like 15 years experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then after that, it was some stuff on, on the IBM compatible. So when we used to refer to computers as IBM compatibles uh, and probably something in basic, I guess. Uh, yeah. So it's, but I didn't really do a whole lot. Uh, and I wanted to do computer science at school, but, but uh, the teachers didn't think that I'd do very well because my maths mark wasn't very good. Um, so that was probably a good thing. So I didn't grow up learning Pascal. I made it through
0: two terms of Pascal, and I turned out all right.
2: I made it through three but years
3: think, of it. That's, <laughs> that's the outlier. I'm not sure if I'd want to... It might have kind of, kind of killed the enthusiasm of into <laughs> computer science, but uh, I don't know. So, either way, I didn't know that. I had
0: it at my first high school when I switched high schools. Uh, the second high school only added it as one of the six subjects, and I had it as a seventh subject. And I didn't know it. the teacher was helping me work out my roster, was uh, like pushing really hard that I take it. And I told him to his face that it's like, it doesn't matter. It's not a good enough subject to have it as one of the six. That's why I had it as a seventh subject to begin with, not realizing he was the teacher. So, short sure, that ended my stint with Turbo Pascal. <laughs>
3: <laughs> nice, nice one, Kenneth. That's the the, the bedside the bedside manner of a surgeon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what was the first program you got paid to write? Because that's where the um, experience started. It was, yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, it was most probably something in ASP, like classic ASP, which is a bit ironic. but Then I'll call it classic ASP, which what, what script? And I think ironically, I was doing some some JavaScript as well you could do javascript on the server was it javascript or something then, silly instead of vbscript yeah yeah it was it was that i think um, but i mean at that point javascript was javascript no one really cared because you were just copying and pasting off dynamic drive anyway um, <laughs> but yeah you could you could you could do server side javascript back back then which was what the in the 90s 98ish thereabouts
2: Yeah, node finally caught up didn't they
3: exactly Microsoft's been doing it all the time.
0: And uh, well, kind of like after that. So so that puts us, what, like the late 90s, 2000s. What was the first thing that kind of got you excited after that? I mean, like, I did dabbled with ASP Classic. That was kind of in high school when I started the web, was that same time. And it sucked
3: horribly (laughs) to do it that way. It it did. It wasn't a great way to do it. Um, and I think also it's it is, I guess it's the same as it is now. There's no barrier to entry, so it's difficult to kind of get things done properly. I think, um, but it's a it's a it's an issue that still carries on now. Uh, I think the big thing that, that helped my my enjoyment of what I was doing was working at a at a startup from the late '90s for a couple of years, uh, and that was really cool. It was a um, not going to mention the company name. They've since been bought out by someone else. Um, but it was really interesting having like venture capitalists come, come to the office and having table tennis tables, and swimming pools and tennis courts and all that sort of thing. Um, that, was, that was kind of the start, I think. Wow.
0: Okay. That's like long before, I guess, the startup craze got so, so nuts.
3: It was. It was kind of over that 99, 2000, 2001 when, uh, when mm. everything kind of fell apart. Um, although it didn't really affect us directly um but yeah it was it was that sort of time which is really interesting it was kind of the napster time um, pre, and pre pre google and pre facebook and pre linkedin pre everything uh so it was it was an exciting time to be involved uh,
0: did the were you gravitating towards the web uh kind of naturally or was it that first asp job that kind of got you hooked or was there something else you were curious about like i don't know game building
3: or embedded systems or
0: databases or backends or
3: uh, you know, back then it wasn't just—it wasn't really the web as a as a primary thing. There was lots of uh, lots of uh, Windows desktop stuff, which was primarily in VB, BB, VB five and VB six, and uh, a little bit of Delphi as well. So it was kind of that—you know, so sort the of pre pre .NET coming out. It was it was uh, the earlier Microsoft stuff, um, which wasn't great either. Uh, still isn't great, but. Uh, it was okay. I mean, you could actually get stuff done, and you can you could get paid for it, and, and customers were happy, which is which is not a bad position to be in.
0: And uh, yeah, that kind of leads nicely to the customers being happy. When did you start freelancing? So, when like just looking over your LinkedIn, Broken Keyboards goes
3: back quite some time. So, I started Broken Keyboards in. 2000 I think we actually started it in 99 and then registered it in 2000 so I've just missed that that extra (laughs) decade (laughs) that would have been cool Um, and I I started that at the same time as doing some other things and so that's kind of been for for the first several years that was a bit of a back burner uh, a bit of a way to to invoice customers for for the and stuff uh, which is always useful it's always useful and you can kind of admit it now you can't really do it when (laughs) <laughs> when you're working for a couple of people, um, but it was it was yeah it was cool. It was cool. So the the startup thing I was involved for a couple of years, um, and it's it's quite funny because we used to be in a be in a house in in Santon, and I I found out a couple of years later that they actually really struggled to find other premises because the the real estate agents would get really suspicious when they said uh, you know we need a, a house that's got like twenty bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, that obviously that uh, that fitted another profile for another type of business. Um, so I think they really struggled to move around, uh, which was quite quite funny. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, at, at that point, you know, no one was doing well. No, the whole startup thing was not very really popular. So no one, no one really believed that you were running a company out of a house. Oh, that's brilliant! <laughs> and uh, I'm going
0: to get Paint us a picture like what you did after startup with broken keyboards, like leading up to like 2010, because I guess if I have to infer, that's when a lot of things started coming into place for you that like led a lot of good, like what's the word I'm looking for, like the foundation for your conferences and other like side projects you started.
3: So I was in, in business with someone for a couple of years from 2003 to 2008 ish. Um, which was kind of the main, uh, the main thing that kept me busy. So broken keyboards was kind of a bit of a secondary thing over that period. Um, still ticking along, but not really doing a huge amount. Uh, and that partnership was great. And I, I still keep in contact with a lot of the people that I, that I worked with, which was cool. Uh, and the main project that we were involved in was doing a, an ERP system for one of the hardware vendors or one of the hardware resellers. And that was all in, all in .NET with uh, a Windows front end, can't really remember why we went the Windows front end thing. Uh, front end route, I think maybe the customer wanted it more than the web, um, which was fine. I mean, it's just it is it is what it is. It's difficult to look back several years and say, well, we should have done this, we should have done that. Um, so that was kind of 2003 to 2008, and then Broken Keyboards has been full time from them, uh, barring a, a one year. Uh, sabbatical at at, some, at a friend of mine's oh, I was company. just going
0: to ask, how on earth do you do a sabbatical? I think a lot of people want to like, would want to know how you pull that off. Yeah,
3: it wasn't really a sabbatical. It was more like um, uh, it was it was an experiment from both sides, which didn't uh, didn't work out. Um, but everything's so cool. It was just not a. Um, yeah, it just it just wasn't. I think once you've worked for yourself for so long, it's very tricky to go back into into any kind of corporate environment. I think your brain is just not wired. Um, it's not right or wrong. It's just not wired to to do certain things that you should be doing in an office.
0: Yeah, no that that does does make a lot of sense. No, I just hope you had like the golden nugget. I was listening to another podcast on the way to Ruby D camp, and that uh, the the guest on the show also took like a one year sabbatical and everybody asked him the same question and his answer was quite simple he said like after college he didn't change his lifestyle um so he grabbed his he kept his crappy old car he kept staying in a in a little flat and saved up for youngs to the point where he could basically had a whole year's worth of saving and by that time he was married and he like asked his wife look can I just burn through my savings for a year and then whatever happens happens and yeah you know, by dumb luck like to his own admittance by dumb luck he had a hugely popular game on iOS uh, what's it called? It's a text-based adventure, dark something. I don't know if anybody on the call have seen it before. No, I didn't, but it was a good good story for him. But that was his strategy. So I was hoping to get another nugget out.
3: No, no, I'm afraid not. It's it's definitely something I'm keen to do, but uh, uh, yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I think you've got to you've got to plan a couple of years in advance for for that sort of thing to do it in a way that doesn't actually impact you negatively going forward.
0: And how long sabbatical do you think you'd take if you have to plan it now? Do you, Like a year, two months, three months? Is three months too short?
3: Three months, three months too short. So I've taken a three-month one before, um, kind of way back. And I, I think the one, the one risk that you run with doing that is you look back a year later or five years later and you don't actually remember anything that you did. So it's almost like you, if you take a sabbatical, you've almost got to have some kind of output. You've either got to you know get into great shape or you've got to write a book or you've got to do something something phenomenal that you can actually say that's what i did during that period the worst thing you can do is is just chill i think because then you look back and you just presume it was wasted time because there's no actual you haven't actually done anything
2: yeah i think that's that's pretty great advice actually um just thinking back to the time that i i, I took six months off at one stage and Had a specific output that—that was where I wanted to get into web programming, Uh, and still think that's one of the best times that I had. So, yeah, have some kind of end goal in mind, although that wasn't my goal when I started.
3: No, I think it's important. I mean, otherwise, it's you just view it as a holiday, and you know, after a couple of weeks, you don't actually need a holiday anymore. Then it just becomes a period of being unemployed, which is um, not—it's not productive unless you've got some grand vision for that, that time. Uh, so that's kind of my thinking around sabbaticals. And uh,
0: I'm curious, you're thinking about uh, conferences. Um, firstly, conference going. I mean, you have... How many conferences have you spoken at? I don't know if
3: you keep score, but I mean, if you have to go off the cuff. So I, I do actually keep <laughs> nice. the whole list. Um, just on the off chance... Well, no, just on the off chance that somebody actually wants something specific, like uh, customer querying something or, or whatever. Or being asked on a
2: podcast, you know.
3: Or being asked unrehearsed on a podcast like this, yes. Um, I've spoken at a bunch. Um, I think maybe too many. Uh, so I'm actually planning on not speaking at a conference next year. Uh, nothing to do with the fact that you've actually asked me now. Um, but I think it's, just, it's good to have a bit of a break. Um, and also, it's, it's, you know, if I look at, for instance, Ruby Fuser, I've only been – to be Fuza as a speaker, um, and that's that's not cool. I, I think it's better to actually have a bit of a bit of a, a mix. So at some point, I'm gonna maybe next year I'll pay I actually pay Mark for my ticket as opposed to trying to get a free <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
0: it is actually quite nice going to Fusa as a, as a just as a conference goer, and to Jayson as a as just a conference goer is also a lot of fun. But I've spoken at, at both. That's also great. And uh, what's so? I kind of want to ask. I mean, you've had a lot of practice speaking, and I think when people see you uh, present now, you're really slick and comfortable. You've got your like topics waxed. Um, I mean, you present barefoot. Actually, why do you present barefoot?
3: Sorry, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't always do it. Um, so I, I spoke at a conference a couple of weeks ago that I, I, was, I, was, I was fully clothed after a change. Um, I'm not really sure why, why I started doing it. Um, I mean, I tend to walk around without shoes in general. Um, maybe that's because I'm from the Eastern Cape. I'm not really sure. Um,
1: no, I think it's a programmer thing because there's people in my office who also walk around barefoot.
3: Well oh, there we go. I'll I'll blame I'll blame my I my career choice
0: on that. At, at meetups and conferences, how many of these uh, Vibram uh, shoes you see? Uh, yeah, I think should also do something. A lot of developers like the
2: the barefoot thing. <laughs> I've just been thinking since I've started working remotely. Most days I'm working barefoot as well.
3: <laughs> well, there we go. The the
0: movement has started. There we go. So, um, apart apart from that, what I what I wanted to ask was um, so. What was your worst speaking experience? And kind of fall on to that is like, how did you get over that and just kind of carried on? Um, if it was one of the first ones, just for people that might be aspiring to
3: uh,
0: go speak at a meetup or a conference.
3: Sure, Kenneth. So you you presume that I've... Um,
0: <laughs> well, you're comfortable.
3: something that I definitely haven't. Um, and that's um, kind of what I mean. I- yeah I think the the risk is you then become too complacent so I think it's i mean all the all the talks that i've given uh all the ones that I can remember giving um i've been I've definitely been nervous beforehand and I think that's good i think it you know it's a bit of respect for what you're doing and the people that are that are in the audience um, i I think the worst ones that i've done uh which is probably more than one, I would reckon is because I haven't been prepared properly. Uh, which is not a you know not a good thing to admit, but you know, these these things happen for a hundred and one reasons. Um so I think that's I mean that that's a, that's something that you can rectify very quick very quickly by not not being stupid enough to stand up in front of a bunch of people and not be prepared.
0: Yeah, I've also made that mistake before it's it's horrible. The feeling afterwards is not <laughs> not particularly pleasant.
3: It isn't. It isn't. Um but, I mean, these things happen. So it hasn't, hasn't happened in a while. Um, but I would reckon in terms of, like, bad experiences, I would reckon that's, uh, that was one of them. Probably for the audience as well, not just the speaker. <laughs> yeah, no, good point.
0: So, like, just a little preparation gets people, um, well, makes all the difference.
3: I think so. And I, I think it also helps to, to only speak on what you want to speak about. So I've never been – I did Toastmasters at school, which doesn't really count for anything. Um, but I think if you were given a topic like a week before or something to that effect, I think that'll be a completely different dynamic. Um, so I've never really had to do that, uh, and that's—I reckon—that takes a whole bunch of skill to actually be able to talk passionately about something that you could care less about.
0: Yeah, it's almost what debate clubs are for. But I mean, it's a skill, like you say. It's—it's it's, uh, maybe the topics are not interesting, but it's a whole different ball game to participate in. And uh, I reckon. what I reckon. tips can you give to? aspiring um, presenters? Like somebody who's now building up, they might be talking if it's like at a developer UG meetup, which can be like close to a hundred people or at a conference, like what would your advice be for somebody starting?
3: So I think the big thing for me is to make sure that people are not jumping straight to conferences and are doing it in a, in a bit more of a safe environment. So speaking at like an internal uh internal group in a company is is probably a good a good starting point. Um although it's probably easier to speak at a small user group. Uh I think speaking in a in a group of like 10 people that you know is probably a, a lot more difficult than speaking in front of fifty people that you don't really know. Uh, that's certainly my kind of the way my brain works. Um but I think trying to go through go through the the ranks a little bit. Speaking at the at user groups is fantastic. I'm just so sorry that there's such a small pocket of people that do that. Yeah, and all the user group
0: organisers we chat to are constantly looking for people to to speak. So
3: people should just raise their hands. I think. I agree, 100, percent and I think it's it's good for their for their career as well. Uh, the ability to stand up in front of a bunch of people and speak is a is a skill, and and I think it can set you apart, regardless of whether you want to be speaking in public. That's not the point. Uh, think of it as a. Know, practicing a, a sales pitch or an investor pitch or whatever it is. At some point you're gonna be at some point you're gonna be in in front of a bunch of people and gotta and gotta deliver Done. something. I think if you work in a big
0: organization it might just also be doing a demo for a bunch of stakeholders. Like suddenly you have to show something off and talk a bunch of people through it and handle questions. So you know, it's definitely not the skill wasted. Yeah,
3: it's the same argument for me as is when you interview people, and there's a movement that says you shouldn't ask anyone to, to code in an interview, even if it's on a whiteboard. And and my argument is, at some point, you're going to be at a customer's office fixing a bug, and the customer is going to be standing behind you watching what you do uh, for whatever reason. And and there we go. That's that's pressure. So you've got to you've got to be able to you've got to be able to do it.
0: And I'm curious about this question you went to in Mauritius, like. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Uh, how did you hear about it? Uh, made it happen? Like what cool stuff happened at the conference, around the conference? What's Mauritius like? So
3: I think the first conference was last year. I seem to remember the guy doing it last year. Um, and he and I were chatting because I I run my own conference, so there was a bit of common, common ground between the two. And I didn't plan to go out last year, but we were kind of chatting about it. And Uh, I knew that his conference was coming up. It was about a month or two months before mine. I think it was like the middle of May. Um, And it was just an opportunity to go. Um, So that's what I did. So I I ended up submitting some talks and he ended up accepting all of them. So I must remember for next time not to submit three talks for three days. That was too much. Um, uh, But it was a fantastic conference. It was a a three-day event and they had three tracks run the whole time. I think there were three tracks. So, so lots of content. Yo,
0: how do you choose? Oh, well, actually, wait, before that, what are the topics to choose from for, for such a big conference? Uh, so just what, were, what we're available did I choose to or what conference topics goers. did they choose? Like what, what, what were people speaking about?
3: Okay, there was a, a range of, of, a, of dozens and dozens of different technologies.
2: So were the tracks arranged by topic or was it just uh, a, a, a random jumble? I
3: think it was kind of random. Um, I mean, I'm sure there was thought put into it. I, I, can't, I can't quite remember if there was a track for, um, you know, for this kind of technology and server side and client side. I, I can't quite remember that. Um, but I think it was the chapters had so much content and you needed to split it up between rooms. And it's mostly people from the
0: continent. I think I remember reading on the homepage that it was positioned as like an African, like, unite the tech scene kind of thing. But I might be butchering
3: it now. Uh, yeah, I don't quite remember that part, um, but the vast majority were from were from Mauritius. Yeah, uh, which is great because it just shows the this, this, uh, the size of the um, of the community there. So that was quite a surprising thing to see, and and the infrastructure is great, and everything was great. The weather was great. Everything was fantastic. It's a uh, I went in in May, which is their winter, <laughs> but um, it wasn't exactly yep. winter. If if you know what I mean, it was <laughs> like. It was, like, mid-20s, and you could swim in the sea. So, and, and they were selling, like, tracksuit tops and jerseys and that sort of thing. It just blew my mind. Well, people acclimatized to it. <laughs> um, I
0: laughed. Kagi used to be in July, um, like, in peak Japanese summer. And eventually, they started moving it earlier. I think it was just... Oh, they moved it later. It was just now, this past weekend, I think. Uh, so we're recording what's it, uh, like, 20, uh, no? 12th of September. 12th. And, uh, yeah, so they they pushed it out because all the international people uh, complained, basically said they couldn't stomach the heat and the humidity. Um, I mean, you you basically run from air-conditioned building to air-conditioned building to air-conditioned transit. Uh, otherwise, it's just too hot. Like, I don't know, mid-30s and 100% humidity, it's, yeah, if they had it in the winter there, that would be actually quite pleasant for us.
3: So it was. I'm not sure if they did it intentionally. There might have been some other reason, uh, but maybe, maybe it was maybe it was uh, just a cool time of the year. But it certainly wasn't unpleasant from a uh, you know from a tourist point of view. It was fantastic and it was very quiet as well uh, because all the, well, the tourists stay away because it's winter. No, so maybe crazy. that's
0: part of it. Have it in the off season and not to be cheap, like to pull more people. Because I mean, obviously it extends the rates are better. so they've got a better reach. They bring money in a quiet season that helps the. Economy a bit, so might well be a nice calculated move.
3: It could be, it it could be. Though it was surprising how few uh, sort of non Russians there were. Uh, I really thought that there would be a lot more, Uh, but I think the word will get out. It's only their second one, so I'm I'm pretty confident that that things will things will grow. How many attendees were there? If you have to guess, so it was over three days, and I think they had a hundred unique people every day because they had um, like welcome. Um, tags or something. So 100 new people pitched up every day. Um, so let's say after 150 or so thereabouts, I guess, with, over over each of the days, um, which was fine. And actually, it's actually a free conference. There was some, there's apparently some issue in Mauritius that if you charge for an event, you've got to fill out a whole bunch of forms. So it was just easier to make it free. I think that was the, the thinking behind it. Um, so it was great. I think it was also maybe a bit too close for for some of the students for exams so maybe that kind of kept kept some people away but um i'm hoping next year it'll be even better okay even would you go out. again next year i would i would uh, i got you know i got a lot out of it and and made some good contacts and it's also a really great place to go and visit uh, and it's much cheaper than flying into into uh, the uk or the states or, or anything like that uh, so, it's a, it's a much cheaper option. And uh, there's lots of Airbnb options as oh, well. That's good cool. to know.
0: That's really good to know. And uh, now I want to kind of pull it back to, to your baby, um, Jason S.A. It's been running now five years, I think. Six years. Six yeah, years. This was, we just had our sixth this, one. It was great. Uh, thank you. I always enjoy them. Um, like, thank you. How did it start? Like, What was the impetus behind it? I mean, it, it's no small feat to pick something up like that. I, I think people forget what happens behind the covers to, to pull it off.
3: No, I, you know, it's, it's tricky to think back exactly what the motivation behind it was. I think it was uh, seeing an opportunity. There was no one that was doing a, a JavaScript-specific meetup or, or conference or anything like that. There weren't really... I'm trying to think what other conferences were running. Um, Ruby Fuser started a couple of months before we did. Um, so we kind of we kind of on the same sort of sort of cycle, uh, but I think it just came down to opportunity and wanting to do something for for the community. I'd always been involved in in user groups and kind of struggled to see the the real value. We, I mean it's just it, I struggled to see that the reach that you can get with user groups. Uh, they are important, but it's it's tricky to get a. You can't kind of knock it out the park. Uh, but the first conference was tiny. We had it at the the back of a, a coffee shop in Woodmeat. And I think we had like forty people, and it probably took about a month to sell all the <laughs> wow. tickets.
1: Yeah,
3: so that was—I mean, it was cool that we did it, um, and everyone was happy. Um, but it's—it's grown, it's grown, it's grown, a, it's
0: grown quite yeah, a and I bit mean, since then. But this year, it seems the tickets held out a few days at least.
3: But it was last year when it sold out nearly instantly. Or oh, how long did it take? Yeah, so last year sold out really quickly. We sold out in a in a morning, which was crazy. Um, and I, I think the year, because with the ticketing site, you can set up, um, uh, you can set up for it to do like a um, like an HTTP post to some URL, so you can fire off a bit of a workflow. Uh, and initially, I'd set it up to to email me every every time somebody bought a ticket. Um, but I, I didn't I didn't start that one up last year because it would have just been crazy. Yeah, I know.
0: I, I, this year. Um, I set, like, alarms, I don't know, if, like, half past five or something stupid to get the tickets. Like, notified the whole world, like, to wake up and it's, you know, and I guess we made some noise off the podcast with the as one. Then, yeah, I was quite bleak that afternoon when I saw there were still tickets available. And uh, um, I did that to myself. And then the next day there was still a handful of tickets available. <laughs> I was like, damn it. Damn
3: it. But how, how many people yes, were at
2: uh, Sinister Service year?
3: So officially there were two six two fifty something. Um
2: not two fifty six. That would be unfortunate.
3: No, 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 not not that would have been unfortunate. Um although in, in JavaScript it could have been like two fifty eight or something. It doesn't really make any difference <laughs> to that to that <laughs> thing. Um, no, you, you have bit more. shifting, we had, can't you? <laughs> you you can, but it depends on, on the on like the, the millisecond counts or something to see if it'll work properly. <laughs> No, it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, we had sort of two sixty something. Uh, the venue was 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 quite was quite uncomfortable because they kept uh, the the venue staff kept coming to me saying they've counted and they're more than two fifty, and I must go speak to them and I must sign something, <laughs> which was quite funny. So there were two sixty something this year. Oh uh,
0: no! Well, <laughs> it speaks to the the popularity of it.
2: <laughs> but, so no, it's a, a good one, and then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I always enjoy it there with JSNSA and obviously I'm starting it this year, but it's how so many different communities all end up in the same room because JavaScript is kind of like this common language. You've got the, the guys doing PHP, you've got the .NET guys, you've got the Ruby guys all kind of jumbling into the same room.
3: Yeah, 100%. I think it's it's become the it's become like the United Nations of Computer Science, which is quite cool. And uh, a couple of years ago it used to be the bastard of computer science. So it's come quite a come quite a long way.
2: Yeah, ESX has done wonders. It has. It has. But it's
3: so nice you said the United Nations of Computer Science. I'm and- sure somebody else has said that before, but I mean we can just quickly Google it. Otherwise I'll 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 take the Take the coin and, and, what do you call it? Yeah. The domain as well, just in case. It also
0: shows, like, <laughs> at the same time, oh, nobody can agree on anything. <laughs> it's a it's b- very befitting. Uh,
3: yeah. It's, it's exactly right. right. It's, probably a bit, it's probably a bit too close. The analogy is probably too right.
4: Isn't there, isn't there also Atwood's Law? What's it? Any application that can be written in JavaScript will eventually be written in JavaScript.
3: I think so. I think it's similar to the, uh, to the Zawinski law, Jamie Zawinski. Uh, he said something like, like uh, computer systems evolve to the point that they can send email. So I think at some point, <laughs> baked into ES10, there'll be a, an email server or something like that.
4: Yeah. All, all applications eventually become able to read email, I think. Yeah, something like that. There
2: well, were are a few years into AdWords law, so I think most, well, a lot of applications we see in JavaScript now already been written. And if they haven't been, then you just throw them at M on
0: At the risk of ridiculing myself, couldn't you do SOAP over SMTP as well? It wasn't just like exclusively bound to HTTP. Who Wouldn't knows SOAP well it's... enough?
4: <laughs> no one's going to admit that, buddy. No one's going to admit that. Moving okay. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> along swiftly. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, I mean, you've obviously dabbled with a lot of languages.net. You've played with Swift enough that you came to to chat to the other guys on the show uh, about it. But, I mean, JavaScript, what about it? um, Like, it's it's the the, almost, I want to say, the love affair you have with it, that you like it that much that you go through all this effort of of running a, a conference. I mean, people generally
3: don't do that for a language they don't like. It's one of those languages that you have to use. Uh, I think it's it has got better, like like Kevin said with ES6, um, but certainly back, you know, several years ago, you you had to use it. Uh, there's no point complaining about it because there really wasn't much. There really wasn't much um, choice. You could do VBScript in the in the browser, which I don't know if anyone actually did. I mean, I'm sure there are a few people who did it, but I never did any production work with that. There, um, there are
4: also people who actually wrote Java applets, right?
3: And I mean, Java and JavaScript are so similar. So like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> so, so it wasn't so much that I really that I really liked it. It was the fact that it was yeah, there was an opportunity to do something with it, uh, which is what I did with the conference. And then it became more and more closer to being a proper language. And at, at some point I'm sure <laughs> they'll get there.
2: <laughs> so, in other words, it started off as Stockholm syndrome, and now you've just embraced it completely. Yes. What,
0: what's the evolution of Stockholm syndrome if you get married to your doctor?
3: Yeah, I'm, I, I'm I don't fine. know where that goes. <laughs>
0: it's pro- probably better okay. just for it to go no. way, I think. <laughs> Start the Give an editing job. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, this one's staying raw. Um,
0: oh, and uh, oh, another thing I wanted to ask about is. Um, You'll find free Wi-Fi uh, project that you've been because that's also you've been running that for quite some time, and I remember I was quite surprised, like figuring out it was you that actually ran it after I've used it before and like actually knew of it.
3: So that was one of those things that started as a as a pet project and um, and still is a pet project. Um, I haven't really been putting too much too much effort into it. I must be honest, um, although the 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 iOS app is reasonably new. I did that at the end of or well, I redid it from a previous contractor, and I redid it into Swift at the end of last year. Um, and we've just redone, or someone else has just redone an Android version of it as well. And we actually, we're actually probably one of the only companies to ship a Firefox phone version of it as well. Um, so we did that, and about a week later, um, Mozilla sends a mail out to all the developers saying, just kidding, we're not going to get the phone anymore. Um, so that was quite, quite irritating, no, but still, but we still, we still got the phone and we still have the app installed on the phone. Um, it's one of those things that you can't ever actually uninstall it or delete it because it's gone forever. Um, so which quite, quite a pain, um, but these things happen. I guess uh, Microsoft's been in a similar position with their mobile <laughs> yeah. as well.
0: So you then you, is it safe to say you use find free Wi-Fi as a nice, um, like, playground. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. When you see a new technology, you actually have, like, something live to play with and go test it out. So
3: I think that was actually my first talk at, at RubyFuza was around pet projects. Um, and I think it's really important. I really do. I think having too often I th- we complain about what the customer uses and what the company's allowed to use and, and all this sort of nonsense. But it's so easy just to go and build something and deploy it. Uh, which is exactly what I did with the fine Free Wi-Fi. So I think too few people actually play around and actually ship something. Um, and I'd much prefer to actually make something it ships than make something that does something random and then you go and delete it. Uh, that's, I don't need to really practice typing anymore. I prefer to actually make something.
4: I, I was reading a blog post today by the guy who runs the ponyfood.com website, which is his, uh, started off as a side project. And it's now 3,000 commits later. <laughs> and he's just, there's, there's a great blog post. I'll add it to the show notes about how, how PonyFoo is ridiculously over-engineered and why that is awesome. <laughs> and he just carries on to say, like, how much he's learned by sort of writing his own blogging engine and getting it hosted and just all the kind of things he's added to it over the years.
3: Which kind of brings up a, a bit of a controversial um, comment which i'm going to make anyway because just because um and for me and it's actually more important to make something and ship something than purely just to commit something into a public repo i think too often people are running around trying to trying to flesh up their their github their public github repos um, but they're not actually shipping anything Uh, and i think the same thing happened when when swift open sourced there were tons of of pull requests for people fixing grammar in code comments and things like that. And that to me is not, that doesn't make sense. That's not actually committing code into Swift. What you've done is you've just done some low hanging fruit, uh, which doesn't, you know, from a hiring, hireability point of view, I don't think that really ranks up that highly in my opinion.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of people who are chasing a kind of GitHub CV sort of point of view these days, right? I do agree with you. There's, it's sometimes not that useful. Now, I think there's a, there's
3: a fine line, but I prefer to hire or work with somebody that can actually ship something than somebody who's you know, spending who knows how long doing something that's not actually ever going to ship. Uh, so again, it's, there's pros and cons, um, but I think shipping something is, is where the magic happens.
4: Yeah, you have to tie all those bits and pieces together to make it into something real, right? That actually he turns out to. to be quite hard, I think.
3: But also there's a bit of, there's a bit of pressure once you've shipped it. Uh, if you never ship it, and let's not mention <laughs> the two, then, <laughs> then you, never, you never open yourself up to, to actual criticism, yes. uh, which is the reason we haven't published the code, because the code is not the point. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the fact that it, it potentially solves an issue and it kind of scratches an itch, and that's, that was the intention.
4: Yeah, I... I w- we have a chap at the office who's very anti-Apple, and it's, I, I have this discussion with him often, and I one of my points is that they ship a lot of stuff, right? Like, isn't that a good thing? He just sort of rolls his eyes and, you know, thinks I'm, thinks I'm being an idiot. But I do think that there's something to it, and I think that one of the things that makes them interesting is just that they just keep shipping things, as opposed to a lot of other companies that don't. Yeah,
3: and they're shipping stuff um, in a couple of hours for iOS 10 and hopefully macOS as well. Oh, is the macOS release coming out today? Well, I had just presumed it's coming out with iOS 10.
1: Um, Oh, no, I think it's being released um, later. I read an article today.
3: Well, that's ruined the whole week. Thank you. No, no, it's just (laughs)
4: saved whole week. Otherwise,
0: we're and disabled automatic updates. This is the week I can't afford to reboot and not be able to log in again. Yes, I know. <laughs> you will be in big
4: trouble. <laughs> like, I don't know if you guys remember
0: the, the, the homebrew um, upgrade thing with the last upgrade where it went through the file system and individually changed oh. the permissions and it took like seven or eight hours to get done.
2: It was two but, ago.
0: Yeah, I was one of those because I was eager beaver. And I was just like, next time I'll give it two or three days, let everybody fix all the Ruby installs and then we good again. And then I'll jump on the bandwagon.
2: Yeah. Even there, remember, we were sitting at IS at the time. Uh, well, I just left my laptop there, went out for lunch, and when I got back, it was mostly done. It wasn't that painful. It's because I started a few uh, days before you, and was <laughs> I just
0: lucky? Yeah, it was that was crazy. Um, yeah, but uh, I agree with you on the, the GitHub CV thing. I had like a lashing out at some people in Slack last week or the week before. I was basically. And it's not my own view. I I saw somebody else um, talk about it like on Twitter or something. It was like part of a diversity, um, but, you know, just getting women into technology and they were saying this GitHub CV is probably one of the worst things um, in that regard because a GitHub CV does not like first and foremost, it shows you privilege unless you're employed to work in an open source project, like where your day job is actually like committing to GitHub where the whole world can see it. Other than that, if you, if you're committing to public repos out of work, like first and foremost, you're showing you've got a lot of free time, like above e- anything else, and that's the advantage you have over other candidates. If GitHub's the CV, not your actual technical ability, and then people see that through the wrong way. You know, you got like like they, they, moms are taking care of families; they're not going to sit and fix typos <laughs> in repos or like make the next smallest uh you know like rpad on npm or something they like have real responsibilities and that was quite an interesting way to to think about it and it also made me like double like think twice before like pushing
3: the next kind yeah, exactly. of repo so that's that's kind of my feeling
4: yeah but there's two sides to that coin i mean if one side is if you can see that all that the guy does is fix uh spelling mistakes that's that tells you something right whereas if somebody's like patching v8 Fixing serious bugs, then that's something as well. I don't think it's entirely yeah, meaningless. I think it's Is, a fine line. I guess my point. And,
0: and people need to go and investigate the commits, actually. I think that's kind of where the conversation ended up um, in Slack. Like, so we were saying, like, it's valuable if you actually go back through the history. Um, but they were saying, like, at, especially that whole screening part of candidates, where you Somebody sitting there with all these repos and sitting with no repos, and they I haven't even changed the avatar on GitHub, and that's actually yeah. quite unfair. So
4: Simon, Simon, what what's the most important thing you look for when you hire someone?
3: So the the simplest way I can put it is actually how Joel Spolsky put it in his book: um, smart and gets things done. That's kind of that to me is is a bit of an un, uh, it's a like a, like a combination of skills that not enough people have, which I think is, is a real pity. I think there's some really smart people, and I think there's people that can get things done but maybe aren't that smart, which is a very small group. Uh, but a, a combination of someone who is smart and can actually deliver something, I think, is, um, I think would make you very valuable in, in the industry.
4: And, and how, do you, how do you work that out during the interview? Because generally so, you don't have a lot of time, right? You've got like... An hour or two or... well, I'm not sure how, what your process is like so we have
3: been interviewing at the moment, but the the nice thing about having a bit of a network which gets kind of created unfairly if you if you organize conferences is the fact that you know the people already, so there's not there's none of this you know you're not going in at a like an empty empty slate when you interview someone
4: right right, so people's reputation's kind of important <laughs> well. I think it's important to know what
3: someone's done before you interview them. Um, purely looking at a C.V. I think is is a waste of time. Um, so I, I tend not to focus on the C.V. and I tend to look at uh, you know who's spoken at conferences and who's, who's done what. Um, I'm a big fan of pet projects, so if somebody can show me a pet project that they've done, I think that counts for a lot more than than a fancy C.V.
0: I'll link to some slides for the the PET project. I can't remember if that year's talks were recorded, the first FUSA, so I don't know if there's videos available. Yeah, I'll send you a link. Oh,
3: awesome. Thank you. Uh, but last week I actually spoke at um, the, the university in PE, uh, pretty much around the same sort of thing. Uh, it wasn't as much of an anti-corporate thing as as some people thought it may have been. Um, but I spoke to a bunch of computer science students around you know, what is what is valuable in the industry and where they okay. should be heading. I was asking if it was well-received by the students. It was. It was. The feedback was really good, um, and the, the professor that I, that I worked with uh, was, was really happy. So that was cool. Um, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't overly cynical and wasn't overly anti-corporates as, as much as I actually am anti-corporate. Uh, it was just telling the students what I felt was a set of good attributes to have when you get in the industry. Uh, and also, what to focus on—not so much on a like a real tech technical point of view, but maybe the sort of high-level things. Uh, so it was a quite a mixed bag in a in a sixty-minute session.
1: Um, so, what were those high-level things that you mentioned? Because I feel like that um, some some of the soft skills are neglected in um, for computer scientists and software developers.
3: So I spoke to them around what to. Uh, well, the, the, one, the one big thing that I mentioned and that was kind of underpinning a lot of the stuff in my talk was how the work has changed and there's this rise of, of what they call the gig economy and how people need to be prepared to work remotely because that's kind of what's, what's happening. I think probably most of us on the call have worked remotely, uh, but it's still a very small number of people. And there's certain attributes you've got to have, and there's certain attributes you've got to work on. And one of the big ones are are communicating, which as basic a human thing as it is, uh, we just don't do, or we don't do well enough. yeah, so that that was kind of the main thing around remote working, uh, communicating really well, uh, a couple of things on what to focus on from a from a technology point of view, like uh, sort of the microservice thing and uh, domain-driven design, but really high-level, so not drilling into too many details, just very high-level understanding, and also giving uh, JavaScript a bit of a plug. Um, so I asked the students what they focus on from a technology point of view, and it was the usual, the usual kind of trio of Java, .NET, and, and Delphi. Delphi always seems to come up.
1: Still. Delphi.
2: In this day and
3: age. Yeah, Delphi. Delphi, Delphi,
1: Delphi. I'm honestly surprised because I did that um in high school. Um yeah, and then I, I came to university and everyone was laughing at me when I was like, I did Delphi in high school and everyone on the side did um Java in Cape Town.
3: So I s so I spoke to my kids school. She goes to a school in or high school in in the northern suburbs and they'd been teaching their kids uh I think V B or something something odd like that. And they had been speaking to the universities and the universities said, no, 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 they must teach the kids Delphi because Delphi is kind of where it's at, uh, which is really disappointing that they're getting that kind of input from, uh, you know, from the academic side. It just doesn't make sense. Forget about the fact that it's a good language and you can te- teach the basics. It just doesn't make sense to teach people Delphi in, in 2016.
4: It's still one of the top 10 languages there.
3: <laughs> it is, but... I don't think learning it now makes a whole lot of sense because I think you can learn the same principles in a language that you're going to get more use out of, be it C-sharp or Java or one of the dynamic languages.
4: Yeah, no, you're right.
0: So it's almost like starting the trajectory now while it's almost at its peak and going to only go, like it can only go one way, sets the students off on the wrong path.
2: I, I think so. I think so. I remember doing Delphi at high school, much like Chantel. And just well, uh, when I got into doing development seriously, it was pretty much seen that that's the that's the laughing stock of professional Dev nowadays. If you're still doing anything in Delphi, and that and that was about seven or eight years ago.
4: I've got a I've got, I've got a sweet spot for a sweet spot for Delphi. We wrote some fairly large systems with it, and it was a lot of fun.
3: I mean, it's always been a, it's, it's the, what, the power of C with the, the, the speed of Visual Basic. I think that was kind of one of the taglines 10, 15 years ago. So it's a great, great tech, but I think they just lost their way. Maybe kind of around about .NET came out. Maybe they just lost the, lost the plots
4: a little bit. Oh, well, the last I saw, yeah,
2: they, they were actually compiling down to CLR binaries.
4: Yeah, well, didn't uh, Microsoft steal the head of Delphi to design C yeah, Sharp? And, the, and, the, and yeah, he's not uh, doing TypeScript. Yeah, well, he's lost his way, <laughs>
1: totally.
2: can agree to disagree. He, he, did,
3: he did work on the Visual J++ team, though, I think, when he joined Microsoft, all jokes aside. <laughs> so that kind of nullifies any, nullifies any good work that he did.
2: <laughs> and then they just relabeled it to C-Sharp, right?
3: Yeah, it's all about the same, I
4: guess. So, Simon, do you think there's any hope for our industry, man? And if, if so, where do you think the hope lies?
3: So, I mean, there, there has to be hope, um, and I'm sure there is hope. I, I'm sure everything's great. Uh, the, the things that concern me are, I mean, diversity is a big issue, which everyone is aware of. Uh, you mean
4: people diversity?
3: Yeah, so people diversity. I also think that, that age is becoming an issue. I think too many people hit a certain, certain age bracket and then feel compelled to go into management. Um, probably pursuing higher salaries than anything else, and the the risk with that is it just it just shallows the pool the whole time and that 's not a good thing um, and we can you know there's also this 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 rash of of emigration happening as well, which you can understand as well um, so the concern is that it just it just shallows the the knowledge pool repeatedly and i don 't think that's a good good thing for anyone so one of the speakers so i 'm going to to PixelUp, uh, which is a UX conference today and, and tomorrow. And one of the speakers spoke about, the, um, about what's happening in UX in, in South Africa. And it's exactly the same that's happening in, in development, where there's, there's not enough skill. So there's this kind of inflated belief of where our, our knowledge is. And it pushes up the, the salaries. It just creates this vicious circle. And I think we're in the same kind of spiral at the moment. Uh, although I think we've always been in that spiral.
4: Yeah, I think there's just a, a general deficit of skills, right?
3: <laughs> there is, and there's almost no reason for people to get better because they're in such demand. There's, it's not like it's not like employers are looking at your your level of competence when it comes to test driven development, and they're picking and choosing based on that. Um, it's kind of whether or not you can type more or less, and you'll get a job. That's that's kind of how bad it is at the moment.
2: But there is hope.
3: No, there is hope. There is hope. Uh, I think the more the more community events we have, the better, because I think it just brings more and more people out of the out of the woodwork. And uh, I was surprised to hear that there's nothing happening in PE, which is which is a good opportunity for companies down there to do something. Um, so I think the more community events we have, the better. And then that's going to lead into into more conferences and more specialized conferences. And, and then hopefully people use that as a launching pad either to go and work overseas, which is not great for the country or go and speak at in, in conferences overseas. No, and attract great. the work from overseas to here. Well, that's the ideal. I mean, the ideal is to do that. I think the risk we've got is we all read Hacker News and Product Hunt and we kind of know what our counterparts overseas are earning and then we times that by 14.5 or whatever the rand dollar is, and that becomes our hourly rate. So I don't think we're attractive from a, purely from a cost point of view, um, which I guess kind of is how it is. We can't drop the rate. It's you know, it's difficult to do that. Uh, but I don't think that we're a hugely attractive outsourced destination purely because of the, the high cost and the, the whole labor, labor law issues as well.
0: Well, we're getting... Very close to time. I think we're actually over time. Is there anything important anybody still wants to ask, Simon? I mean, I'm kind of blown away. We we went all over the place, got some interesting pieces colored in, some interesting opinions, strong opinions. Thanks. Shadal, um, Kevin, Lin, anything you guys want to ask? I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I think
2: we've covered a lot. Um, Simon, I think it's just great to... Have gone through some of the detail of your views on community, especially but, uh, since you've contributed so much in terms of running conferences, speaking at events, and you know, in general, in general, just um, making the getting people involved in the community. And I just want to perhaps close off with with one question: Is how important do you think the community is to Well, being involved in the community is to a software developer, and um, if we didn't have events like JSNSA, RubyFuser, DevConf, um, what would what do you think the detriment would there be a detriment, and what do you think it would be to the community? So, Kevin,
3: I think the conferences are important. Um, I mean, that's a little bit self-serving from my side, but I think they are important. But I think they're the kind of icing on the cake. I think the the lower level community events like the, the code and coffee and the developer user groups. I think those are where that's kind of where a lot of the, the action is happening. And I think there's too many people that don't get involved. Either they only do the conferences because it's viewed as a, a day of work or some kind of glamorous thing, which it really isn't. Um, or they're just not aware of them. I don't really know which one it is, but I, I definitely think more people need to be involved in, in going to user groups. And there's certain types of developers that are just never going to do it, and that's fine. Um, But I think companies need to go out of their way and actually try and encourage their staff to attend. Uh, And even if they get the staff to wear company T-shirts or whatever it is to try and get a bit of guerrilla marketing, that's fine. But I think that's what what needs to happen. I think more and more people need to go to the, the weekly and the monthly meetups. So I reckon that's more important than the conferences at the moment.
2: It's almost that the spirit of open source coming through in in the community.
3: Yeah, I think it's just, it's more valuable to me. And that's why, uh, as grateful as I am that we had an overseas speaker this year at at, uh, the JavaScript conference, that's why I've been a big fan of trying to keep it it as very much a a local, kind of a local-only type of thing. Um, Not that we've ever turned anyone away, but I, I just think there's enough talent locally. And I think it's better for me to, to know a speaker that lives in a, a city next to mine or lives in the same city than to go and meet and get a, a selfie with someone in a team that's in a country that's in a continent far away you're never going to see again. Um, so that's why I, I think it's important. The local events are are really important.
2: Great. Um, yeah, that, that's it from me. Kenny, you, you want to lead us into, the, into anything else here?
0: Yeah, well, no, I guess... That- for myself, I think that's all said. Uh, Simon is there. Anything we should have asked you that you were like hoping that you had notes for
3: uh, that we missed? We're going to be yeah. here no, for the no, next no. hour. No, we're not going to be <laughs> here for the next hour. No, no, that's it. Um, <laughs> Kevin, I think I think that's about it. I, I do have a couple of book recommendations. If you want to slip that in,
2: or well, should we push that into picks? Cool. Simon, you lead us with some picks. What, what have you got?
3: Uh, so I've got a couple of books that I think are really worthwhile reading. Uh, the first one is called Chaos Monkeys, which is by Antonio Garcia Martinez, and it's it's honestly it's the best book that I've read in a in a long time. You can imagine like a combination of The Social Network meets The Wolf of Wall Street. That to me is the the kind of the best way to describe it. It's not it's not suitable for children. But it's a, it's a really good book, and it's, a, it's as factual as, uh, as it's ever going to be. And it's about, a, uh, it's about the author's startup that gets bought by, I think, Twitter, and then he works at Facebook. So it kind of covers that whole gambit of, of what's happening in Silicon Valley. And it's a really cool, it's a really interesting, really funny read, but I think it's also a really useful read for those that want a, a bit more of a realistic view than, than watching Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Is it
4: fiction or non-fiction?
3: It's non-fiction. Um, so there's been, uh, I listened to the, the author getting interviewed a couple of times, and the person that's interviewing the author is kind of saying, you know, you realize you're never going to work in Silicon Valley again after writing this book. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely worth reading. It only came out a couple of months ago, um, but I, I think that, that to me is the, is the pick for sure.
4: Awesome. What's next? You know, well, Kenny?
0: Sorry. Uh, I only have one. It's actually been, I keep forgetting to pick it uh, every week because I use it almost every day. Uh, 227 uh, from Old Mutual. Um, I know some of the guys who started up way back then, I was too scared to use it to give some system. Uh, login details to my bank accounts, but I've since made peace with it and used it since the beginning of this year. It's a fantastic service uh, to just help you keep tabs on your cash flow and categorize what's going on and slowly make changes in your financial health and and actually see the impact everything has. It's a fantastic little app. And, and another one I've used for about a month now. Uh, it's called Productive, and it's just a little app to help you set up goals with different kinds of achievements Uh, you know you want to exercise five times a week have less than five cups of coffee smoke less stretch exercises whatever you just pack all these things in it's got tons of pre-built stuff to help you with these routines and then depending on how the schedules are set up it will just send you a random push notification to go like hey it's more or less time for this have you done it yes no or at the end of the night you just quickly tick off everything and it helps encourage you to get streaks and whatnot. And yeah, so far it's been it's been a blast having that to kind of like see behaviors change. So those are my two picks.
2: Oh Chantal, have you got anything?
1: Um yes, my pick is a Tumblr called Classic Programmer Paintings. And it basically um it it's a Tumblr full of images of classic paintings and with um programmer kind of captions. So the byline reads Painters and hackers, nothing in common whatsoever, but this is a software engineering as depicted by artists through history. So it's quite entertaining. I love that
4: one. It's brilliant. I think I've seen that. It's very cool.
2: (laughs) Sounds brilliant. Nice one.
4: Len? Um, I've just been reading up on something called Micro Lisp for the Arduino. Hardware hackers, there's a full-on Lisp for programming your Arduino, so it's just www.ulisp.com. Very cool, full-featured, and a whole bunch of projects, actually, to, that you could build and program with MicroLisp. It's interesting. Uh,
2: does that need a, a firmware flashed onto the Arduino first, or...?
4: It, it's, it is the full firmware for the Arduino okay. that, that handles the Lisp programs, Yeah, you know. Sounds pretty cool.
2: Kind of relates to that as uh my pick uh, well not Arduino specifically but just hardware uh is uh Intermesos. I think we may have mentioned it on the show about Rust, whenever that was. Uh but Steve Klavnik's got a book that he's busy working on uh, building an operating system in Rust, it's called Intermesos. Uh and it goes through everything from uh Setting up your bootloader to boot through GRUB, taking a an 8086 into from 16 to 32-bit mode and then into 64-bit mode, and some interesting history on the on the hardware hacking side of all of that. Uh, yeah, so if you want a gentle introduction to operating systems into Mesos, it's really good.
4: Yeah, Steve
0: built oh, it as b- cool. for building an OS without having done any. OS or compiler work and CompSci. So it's like Kevin says he tries to demystify the whole thing. It's like speak for normal people, not for CS grads.
2: Yeah, he basically whittles things down like uh, if Linux if the Linux kernel was a web app, it would be dot dot dot. And I'll leave I'll leave you to the book to go find out what he says. Cool, thank you.
0: All right, thanks everyone for making the time. Simon Fantastic. for joining us for the unscriptedness. Um yeah, it was like a walk around. Uh some parts in cool, relaying, other parts discovery channel, just getting to know you a bit better. And uh, at the same time tonight, thanks for everything that you do for the communities that you're a part of. Um I'm sure it's it's very much appreciated everywhere. Cool, and uh, with that,
3: let everybody say goodnight. Cheers.
4: Cheers. Cheers, Cheers everyone. Bye.